Welcome to the Runners Connect, Run to the Top podcast, where it's all about learning from the best minds in the sport so you can train smarter, stay healthy, and run faster now. And now your host, Lucas Felton. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Runners Connect, Run to the Top podcast. I'm your host, Lucas Felton. There have been many athletes across all sports who excelled at the high school level but struggled afterward. Steve Magnus was one of those athletes. After running 401.02 for the full mile as a high school senior, Steve had moderate success in college but never achieved the results that his high school career promised. After running professionally for a short time, Steve turned his attention to coaching. He was an assistant at the Nike Oregon Project in Portland and is now the head cross-country coach at the University of Houston. In addition to his coaching, Steve has maintained his blog, thescienceofrunning.com, where he posts about all manner of different running and training subjects. He's also recently published a book called The Science of Running, How to Find Your Limit and Maximize Your Performance. Some of the main points Steve and I discussed included the history of training methods and how we have arrived at the present point, Steve's book, why he wrote it, and what he hopes readers will get out of it, and a few things that Steve thinks are part of the future of training and improving performance. We'd like to thank Steve for his time and wish him and his teams good luck in the outdoor track season. One final note on what you're about to hear, Steve mentioned several famous coaches and runners in this interview, names like Gersher, Saruti, Canova, and Johnny Gray. He also makes mention of the famous 22-mile Waiatarua course in Auckland, New Zealand, used by Arthur Lydiard and his athletes. If you're not familiar with these names and terms, you can find information about them, along with every other resource we mention, at runnersconnect.net slash rc41. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the interview. So, Steve, thanks for being here today. Um, to start off, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself and kind of your running history? Sure, definitely. So, I'm now the uh, head cross-country coach at the University of Houston down in Texas. Um, my running history. So, I was a high school phenom who ran 401 for the mile in, in high school. Um, did that kind of coming out of nowhere. I was a 417 kid going into my senior year and then dropped a 401. Um so became kind of, kind of a phenom, and then, for lack of a better word, just kind of sucked in college. Um, <laughs> not horribly. I mean, I qualified for NCAAs and cross and stuff like that, but didn't hit my expectations. Uh, ran a couple years post-collegiately, uh, mostly on the roads. Trained with Alan Webb and that group for a little bit during grad school, and then after that... Um, so I got done with grad school, moved out to Oregon, and worked with the worked with Nike for almost two years, and then for the last two years has uh, have been here at Houston. Very nice. So one of the things you're known for, you're you're pretty well known for your coaching, your running, and for uh, your writing, probably more so than anything else. Tell us about your your blog, the science of running. How did how did that come to be, and what made you want to start it? Yeah, you know, originally I just kind of started it um, almost as a a training blog, um, just to kind of keep myself honest on training, but then it kind of morphed into just me spouting out scientific ideas while I was going through grad school and kind of learning some of the basics of uh, exercise science. And then from there, it just became kind of a platform for me to almost combine my love of running and coaching with kind of the science side that I was learning in school, and then also once I was out of school, applying to coaching. So Ever since then, it's kind of been like a platform for me to speak out on on some of the latest science um, in terms of how it affects coaching and training and all that good stuff. And Remy, where did you get your degree and 
Yeah, so I got my master's at George Mason University out in Virginia. Oh, that would explain the Allen Webb connection. Yep, yep. So, so have you kind of always wanted to get into coaching? It, it kind of came about with my own frustration and my own running. So I, I was always sort of interested in it. Um, but it, it didn't really take a you know focal point in my career until probably my sophomore, junior year in college when I was getting frustrated because I was going backwards and running and I wanted to kind of figure it out. So it started as, as kind of a selfish thing for me to figure out what the heck was going on in my own career. And then from there, it... it just I just kind of fell in love with it and thought, well, this would be pretty cool to do for the rest of my life. So, just kind of became engrossed in it and tried to learn as much as I could. And from there, it's kind of taken over. Can you tell us a bit about some of those frustrations? I've uh, I've done some reading about you and uh, listened to a couple other interviews, but uh, tell tell our listeners out there kind of what happened when you once you got to college. You know, I was one of those runners who who would train myself into the ground a little bit. Um, so I needed I needed someone to hold me back a little bit, and uh, and between me pushing forward and my my college coach not having kind of reins on me, I just kind of went overboard a little bit, um, which resulted in a couple health problems and just some injuries and setbacks, and probably overtrained myself a little bit as my, my freshman year in college I think I was up to about 120 miles a week uh, which is crazy for a kid trying to run the mile but you know at the time it just was it was normal you know I was like up oh, you know let's do this um, so you know honestly uh, through the years the biggest thing I've learned is with with highly motivated athletes my my role as a coach isn't always to push them forward um it's more to kind of rein them back in and and keep them from destroying themselves kind of like i did to myself i'm sure that's quite a challenge in some cases so speaking of highly motivated athletes you mentioned your your time coaching with the nike oregon project in portland that must have been quite an experience tell us about about it yeah it definitely was you know um I was fortunate enough to always be around some pretty good high-level athletes, but going out there and seeing the workloads that were done and seeing the workouts that were done and, and just being a part of it was uh, eye-opening, to say the least. I mean, it was everything was taken to the next level. Um, and it's, it's, you know, I got to see things that, that I don't think, you know, you could even imagine in terms of workouts that I know some people have gotten a glimpse of now, but it's, it was just eye-opening, and it, it kind of gets you to raise your expectations of what is possible and, and what can, what the human body can accomplish. That group has certainly been redefining those limits a bit. So tell me about Mo Farah. What's he like as a person? Um, he, he's a pretty uh, honestly laid-back kind of guy. I mean, he's, he just likes to almost have fun with his workouts, and he's... he's you know, when, when it's time to go, he's serious and gets it done, but he, he doesn't stress over it. I mean, he almost has that kind of Kenyan mentality of, of working really hard, but not not letting it get to him if it goes wrong or goes bad or, or if a workout is off. He just kind of puts it behind him and, and keeps going. Makes a lot of sense. Um, Galen Rupp, what's he like? You know, he's another one that uh, he and Mo are, are probably pretty similar. I mean, Galen, Galen's biggest talent i'd say is is in his ability to recover i mean i've seen that guy handle crazy amounts of work and just come back the next day and i think it's a it's a testament to the consistent work he's done over the years 
that's something that's come up in in the news recently with his with the workout videos that have been posted. That's something that his coach Alberto Salazar has, has come on record as saying that he has just an incredible recovery rate. So finally, the man behind it all. How is uh, what's Alberto like? I think he's uh, he's very passionate about it, what he does, and he he puts everything into his athletes, and it's uh, it was quite an experience. Um, getting to watch him day in and day out and uh, seeing how much work he put into it. It certainly seems like it. So one of the things that I've read that, you, that you've written that was probably my favorite one was one called Learning from the Past. I was a history student, and that's, that, kind of, that side of it is always, has always resonated with me. Tell me about how, what made you write things like that and how you got into that part of, uh, of running. Yeah, so I, I'm really big on kind of science, and I love the history of science, too, and, and almost like um, I'm big on almost looking at evolution and genetics as kind of a side topic. And, and what I really kind of discovered is if you look at, at training theory, if you look at training throughout the years, it's almost like evolution. I mean, we almost evolve um, forward to the point where we're at now. So... So everything that's done in the past kind of builds on each other, and if and if you looked at the the training throughout the years, it's almost like this this balance, this interplay between you know volume and intensity, where it kind of shifts back and forth with every generation, and with every generation we refine things a little bit. So it's not like we're doing anything revolutionary now. Um, it's still the same principles as Olivier or whoever have you. It's just every subsequent generation refines and gets it a little bit better so i really think in order to know you know where to go training wise we we have to know where we've been um so knowing the history knowing how we evolved to this point provides that foundation for both coaches and athletes i i wholeheartedly agree for those out there who haven't who don't know much about the history of training can you as kind of as briefly as you can just kind of summarize toward the present day yeah, definitely. So as, as I briefly mentioned, it it almost goes at this back and forth between, uh, for simplicity's sake, you know, higher volume and then, then high in intensity slash interval training. So, you know, back in the day in the 30s and 40s, there was uh, a coach slash scientist named Ger Valdemir Gershler who kind of started interval training and he, he did it because he could measure heart rate. So he'd run 200 meters measure heart rate, wait till it got down to 120, and then have them run 200s again. And they'd do, you know, 30, 40, 50, 200 repeats, just knocking it out. And then after that, it, it kind of, a backlash kind of came against that and said, all right, all this interval work is really good. Um, but the kind of late 50s, early 60s was all about, okay, let's, let's take some of this interval work, but let's hit the other side more, kind of high volume. And that's where Lydiard came in and a little bit of Saruti and then Bowerman of course and all those guys and then during the 80s and 90s you almost had another backlash where it was like okay let's get away from this 100 mile a week thing and, and go back towards maybe we're running 60-70 miles a week but have a good amount of intensity in it um, and that's you know where it went until the Kenyans came along um, and during the mid late 90s and kind of brought it back to where it's like okay we can combine these two a little bit better where it's back to high volumes to a degree 
but the um, interval work was kept uh, pretty intense. So, you know, basically summarizing up is this interplay, this back and forth between volume and intensity over the years. And as we've kind of come along, it's kind of narrowed where we're not arguing over 100 miles versus 20 miles a week. And instead we're arguing over, you know, 80 to 90 or whatever you have. And it's a smaller range, but it's the same kind of arguments. That's, that's been an interesting interplay to, to read about, especially and stuff that you've written. So let's go a bit more to the technical side of things. What um, What's an area of training you think most runner, the most people could improve in? Um, that's, that's a good question. Um, for the most part, I'd say it would be kind of the sprint slash neuromuscular slash power side of things. You know, if you, you look at distance runners, we're we're generally pretty good at hitting kind of the aerobic stuff, the longer stuff, the threshold, and then working down the, you know, your your interval stuff, whether it's 5K pace to mile pace. But I think a large, a large part of runners ignore kind of the pure speed aspect of it uh, because they're scared of running too fast. So I think things, you know, just things that sprint athletes would do, whether it's 60, 70, 80, 100 meter sprints with full recovery or hill sprints like popularized by Canova or, or Brad Hudson or or even just some power work in the weight room um, is something that a lot of athletes could find an extra percent or two in, in terms of performance if they added. And so in addition to maybe some hill sprints or some weight work, what's what are some, some kind of general workouts that people maybe don't, runners of every level, not just those who are trying to run, say, fast on the track or, fa- or really fast on the road, but somebody maybe who's just trying to get under three and a half hours for a marathon. What's what are some workouts that they could they could they could include that, that maybe they don't? Yeah, you know, I I think um, as I said, I think hill sprints are huge. I, I think going down to the track and doing something like two by sixty, two by eighty, two by hundred um, is really good. I mean, I, when I was with the Oregon Project, we'd end several workouts by doing six by eighty meter sprints with full rest. Um, and then other things where you almost combine it with with um, with some longer intervals and kind of create a speed endurance component. So at the end of workouts, maybe include you know five by one fifty or four by two hundred, where you're really kind of blasting it to kind of get used to running fast when you're tired. Which is an interesting thing that most people don't, like you said, that most people don't maybe don't think they can do or are afraid of doing because they don't want to pull something or whatever it is, you would probably agree there's there's nothing wrong with running as fast as you can. Yeah, uh, oh, you know, there's a big a big fear of pulling stuff and all that stuff. And the reality is if you do it right, you're not you're not going to get hurt. Um, I mean, if you're really worried about it, just do it on a hill. I've never had someone get hurt running, you know, hill sprints or something like that. So as long as you work into it, it's like any other workout. I mean, you're going to have to run full speed at some time, so might as well practice it. So then I have a couple of personal questions. Why do you think everybody insists on doing a long run every week, like every seven days? Uh, honestly, it's probably tradition, you know. It, it really kind of took off with uh, Arthur Lydiard. Uh He was really big on having his athletes do that long run on, uh, I'm going to screw up the name, but I think it's like Wyatuga or Wyatura or something like that. Um, a really long, like 20, 22-mile route. So I think since then it's it's become so ingrained um, 
that it's necessity. Um, the question is, and you bring up a good point, is is do we need it that much or do we need it more frequently or less frequently? And I think that the answer varies. You know, I think on, for example, some of my 1500 runners or more kind of fast twitch runners, a lot of times we'll push the long run to once every two weeks um, because that's all you need to maintain the aerobic side of things. So if you're trying to build it up, I think once a week, works great and and even for some marathoners maybe once a week plus a secondary medium long run but but if you're just trying to maintain it i mean you can get away with doing a long run maybe once every two weeks and be fine and something else that comes up a lot in a lot of college programs and a lot of elite programs why do you think everybody does the long run after their friday long tempo run that those seem to be very similar efforts to me that could very easily be combined and and you could save yourself a lot of time i i would agree you know actually if we do a long tempo eight eight nine ten miler we just count it as a long run with a longer warm-up and cool down um but it's interesting to see i I think it's it's because people think long run is its own separate entity and and the reality is and you see this a lot in the kenyan runners is you can get a long run effort in with combining it with something else um, by manipulating how long you warm up and cool down. And I think that's a great component that we don't use enough here. Um, I think college programs a lot do it is because it's almost a tradition. It's like that Saturday or Sunday long run or whatever have you, like we have to get it in. Um, And sometimes they don't think like, uh, well, maybe we don't need to, you know? That's been my thought for years is if you're going to do a 10-mile tempo on a Friday or a Saturday, why would you go and do a two-hour run the next day, for yeah. example? Yeah, no, I, I agree completely. I think you just combine it. As I said, whenever we've done 10-mile tempos, we'll just go in a longer warm-up and cool down and call it a long run. All right, so now what are, what are, you, questions, what are some other things you've maybe come to question about quote-unquote traditional training um, that's a good question. You know, off the top of my head, it's hard to think, but, you know, I think it's a lot of things that we just accept, you know, um, for example, a lot of times now we accept that, that we have to do, you know, one single longer run per, per day, you know, and that running 10 miles or nine miles is better than doing, you know, two runs of five or two runs of four. Um, and I don't think it necessarily is. I think it is for building building up aerobic endurance. But the reality is sometimes when we're doing an easy day, you know, we're not actually trying to build up aerobic endurance anymore. We're just trying to get a recovery in. And at that point, I think two, two shorter runs is better. So I think, you know, there's a lot of things like that where it's just it's just accepted that we've we've done that for years and years and years. And people stop questioning it like the long run. And I think you have to set, step back and be like, okay, why am I doing it this way? And if you step back and ask that question, a lot of times you you know you end up changing uh, traditional things, and that's how kind of training evolves and we get better at it. And people tend to get really scared of that, and they question why they would question it in the first place, which I think is an interesting thing because people want to get better, and if they're not by their by their doing their same general program if they're making adjustments and everything maybe maybe they should question it to some extent so if you had to 
I don't think there's really any real answer to this, but if you had to pick like an era in the past where people had it probably the most right, what do you think? What do you which do you think it would be? It, you know, I I don't know. Um, as I said, I think it's right now. I mean, I think every time we we improve upon it a little bit. You know, I think I think we're getting better at training methodology as we go i mean there's setbacks it's like as i said it's i kind of see it like evolution sometimes we go in the wrong direction and that gets chopped off you know um i think that happened a little bit in the the 90s with high school training in the u.s we went in the wrong direction we sucked and then we self-corrected and and then you had you know alan and all those guys kind of come along and take it to the next level so you know i think we're our best training methodology is right now but i think that's because of the things that we were done in the past, you know, I think we've we've kind of forgotten some of the things that we did in the past too that really worked. If you look at um, uh, Igloy's work in the the sixties, seventies, eighties, which Johnny Gray has now used with some of his athletes to success, I think that's a forgotten kind of training paradigm that that has some merits that we might want to mix into today's training, but. No one knows much about it, so it, it hasn't kind of taken hold. That's true. That's actually a, something that I hadn't thought of. Can you tell us a bit about Igloy's training and kind of who Igloy was and where he's from? Yeah, sure. So he was a Hungarian coach um, who actually came to the U.S. and started working with uh, with athletes uh, in the 60s. And he had, I think, several world record holders in Hungary and then... Um, a couple Americans who were who were the top in their day, um, and then that evolved into a couple of his former athletes coaching, like Joe Douglas out at Santa Monica Track Club, who, and then a couple other coaches uh, who ended up coaching Johnny Gray and some of our best 800 runners back in the 80s. Um, and, and the basic philosophy was was that you could take interval training and. And the way you manipulated the intervals depended on uh, a determined outcome. So it wasn't just high-intensity stuff. It was like, well, we can get the same effect of a tempo run uh, by doing 200s, 300s, 400s if we manipulate the pace and the rest a little bit. So I think it's a, it's almost a lot. I'm not saying we should go totally back towards it, but I think it's another ar- weapon in your, you know, your arsenal to use. Um, as a quick example, I've use modified, you know, short intervals with short rest, kind of Igloy style, uh, not too fast for people coming back from mono with great success um, because it's an easy way to keep the stress load down but still get in some quality work. So I think it's got a place in modern training uh, if people kind of learned and understood it a little bit better. Yeah, that's, um, I've, I've seen a short, like a video summary where you talk about Igloy style intervals and I agree that's probably something that more people could do frankly especially those who have short attention spans and uh and can't deal with the tempo run very well I know, I know i had a few of those in my teams in high school and college we're doing say yeah 30 by 200 with 30 seconds rest would would have worked a lot better than trying to do a four mile tempo run exactly even if it would have taken longer so one of the so the main point of this interview in the first place is uh you you've just become a published author <laughs> congratulations Thank you. So, tell us about your about your book. What's it called? Summarize it a bit. 
Yeah, so it's called The Science of Running, and, and what it is essentially is, is I like to say it's two books in one. So the first half is all science, so it's my science nerd part of me. Um, it's, it, it's explaining, you know, um, how the body works, what that means. So I like to think it includes some new wrinkles on stuff, um, explains why we get fatigued, basically anything you'd ever want, and the up-to-date research uh, on why that occurs. And then the second half of that is like, okay, we've got all this science stuff. Now, how do we apply it practically? Um, it's almost the the coaching side of uh, side of the book. So, how do we apply all the science? How do we train? What's the philosophy of training? All that kind of stuff. Um, so it's it's essentially two books in one. So if you know, I always say if if you get scared off by the science, well, you got the second half uh, to read too. So. You know, what it is, is it's basically I wrote the book that I wanted to read. Um, I, I was kind of tired of reading all these books, which were really good, but didn't totally satisfy me. So I tried to, it, tried to cram as much information as I could in, into it and kind of uh, give the process of not only what the science tells us, but the kind of my philosophy and the process of coaching rather than just saying, this is what you do, do X, Y, and Z at this time and be done with it. So, what dissatisfied you with some of the other books? You said they just you said they just they didn't did they just not quite take it far enough, or how how do you mean? You know, I I don't want to put other books down because I, I learned a lot. But you know, I think I think what it was is you know to get the full picture, I had to read like ten books, right? Um, to get a full picture of everything going on, and you know, I I pull pieces from you know Coe's book and pull pieces from Lydiard's and and all that stuff and and my my book was almost an attempt to assimilate everything I've I've learned and I guess my dissatisfaction and and some of them were were it was almost almost like a paint by numbers coaching you know um, where it's hmm. like this is what you do at this time at you know at this place for this athlete and where I kind of took my book is that you know every athlete's individually different I can't tell you when and when to do X workout, but what I can tell you is here's the thinking behind why I do these workouts at this time. So it's almost learning the process of coaching and the process of training versus, you know, the X's and O's of it. And so what was your goal is and what did you want people to get out of your book to learn, kind of to learn how to coach themselves or? You know, I, I think my goal was essentially to educate. So I just wanted to put something out there that would be a resource for people. And also, you know, honestly, it was to put a little different spin on things. You know, I think there's a lot of good coaching books out there, but I wanted to kind of include a different twist to it. So as I said, my mine's more of a learning process than almost to learn either how to coach yourself or to learn the process of coaching for a college or, you know, high school coach and how to design and go about it. And how to ask the right questions rather than just kind of copy a training program from a book. That's interesting. I think a lot of people would really benefit from that. Kind of learning how to do it themselves, as opposed yep. to just as opposed to just taking a carbon copy of something. Exactly. So, what are a few other books you think that runners of, I mean, any level or any goal, uh, should read? Uh, that's a good question. You know. Um, I'm partial to Renato Canova's marathon book, which you can get from the IAAF. It's a short book, but really good. Um, 
And then the other ones, you know, I, I started with the classics, so Lydiard's Running to the Top was one of the first books I ever read. And then I think another um, really good book that isn't necessarily about running is called um, The Science of Winning by Jan Olbrecht, uh, which is actually a swimming book, but it gives a really good detailed approach of, of almost the science behind it, but also kind of you know how to approach training and it's about swimming but you can take a lot from it so those were a key couple key you know highlighted books i'd keep in mind i find that interesting that one of your key books is is not even about your your main sport uh a lot a lot of people cite um doc councilman's the science of swimming book as well which is again not about not about running but there's a lot of lessons to take from it that's true you know i've read councilman's book and it was one of the first ones that you know, really hit home the message that you can learn from a lot of other sports. And I think reading about other sports and even reading about tangential subjects, you know, a lot of what I've read recently is almost on kind of the brain and how we process fatigue and all that stuff um, and how we deal with stress. And you can apply that all to coaching. So it's going beyond your just general scope of running books to other sports and other areas um, is where you can pick up a lot of information. I want to go into that a little bit. You talked, you mentioned now about about the brain and kind of you said how we process fatigue. That's something that I've seemed to read more and more about. Is at least at the highest level, people are you know the the new frontiers are not finding out new workouts and things because, like you said, that's that's kind of already been done. We're mostly just fine tuning what's been done in the past, and the new frontiers are on more things like like recovery and, and being able to kind of finding ways to squeeze in more work go tell me tell us about your thoughts on that yeah definitely you know uh, I think uh, what we're getting to now is a lot of the almost extra extra um, things are becoming more important so we're learning how to deal with with everything that re- revolves around the workout so not just the workout itself uh, the brain itself and the you know, cognitive psychology of it all is is exploding right now. We're learning why fatigue happens, how we process it, um, how we deal with it. And I think that's a huge area because if you learn that, you know, fatigue isn't just, you know, what happens in the muscles, but it's how the brain kind of takes that information and then how you decide how you're almost fighting your own brain holding you back and how your drive is kind of a determining factor in pushing forward kind of almost liberates the athlete and and also gives you some things to work on. So, for example, recently in, in workouts, and I think this goes to your point on kind of the extra extra work that we're kind of looking at beyond just the workouts, is, is now I do workouts where it's not just do this, you know, do four by mile at X pace with X recovery. Now we're looking at challenging the athlete in terms of their their sensory feedback and their their um their drive so we'll do repeats where i won't give any splits or we'll do repeats where i'll be leading the pack and just tell them to hang on and not tell them what pace we're running or even how far we're running so you're you're manipulating almost how they perceive either splits or feedback or all this stuff or another one would we do is I'd have athletes surge at random points during the intervals and not tell the other athletes 
Um, so you're you're almost creating these blind feedback workouts where you're no longer just manipulating the physiological variables, but you're manipulating the psychological and, and how they perceive you know the stress of not being able to have these defined parameters. That's something that I've seen kind of here and there. Um, people usually just call them like mental toughness workouts. Is that kind of what you're going for? Yeah, a little bit. You know, I think mental toughness is kind of a catch-all term, but, you know, what we're really ingraining is just trying to get them to deal with, you know, almost like, all right, if someone goes, like, I go with them. For example, you know, if you look at championship races, (coughs) I mean, you know how far you're running, you know the distance you're racing, but you don't know anything about what's going to happen in the race. So, Sometimes I think in practice we get really good at clicking off, you know, even pace stuff um, and get good at that because we practice it all, all the time. But sometimes people fail when it comes time to championship where you see, you know, if you look at the Kenyans, they'll throw in random surges every once in a while. I, I've been in races where it's been almost like 200 meter surge, then 200 meters chill, and they just go back and forth. And if you're not prepared for it, both physically and psychologically, it, it can get on you. So I think just having the ability of of almost, you know, being able to deal with stress during the race of surges and not knowing how far those are going to last um, is a huge deal. So how, how could somebody who's, say, not trying to, who's, say, just trying to go into a race aiming for, for a time rather than, like, a certain place or a championship or something, how could they apply some of these concepts? You know, um, the big thing is not to let the time hold you back. Um, A lot of times what happens, and we see this with college athletes too, is that you get so ingrained in the splits, right? And and you almost let it either hold you back or you it it creates a source of stress. I've had it either ways with athletes where it's like, you know, if they're not dead on the splits, they're trying to run for the race. For example, we're running a 5K. If they're not on their mile or two mile exactly, they stress out and then they blow up. And a lot of that is kind of the the psychological effect of if you're stressing out about being a you know two or three seconds slow, then that creates this whole stress and then you just blow up. And then I've had it the other way where athletes almost hold themselves back because they're trying to run, let's say, five-minute pace for a 5K. And if they go through, you know, a mile and 450 but they feel good but sometimes they'll ignore that feeling good because they're like no no I'm supposed to run five minute pace so a lot of it is is kind of getting rid of those psychological barriers um, and a lot of that starts in practice with things like we said I think a lot of times you have breakthroughs when you just kind of throw out the watch and like all right mile repeats go we'll see what the end time is and I think it sounds like that's something that could be extrapolated from anything from, say, a 14-minute 5K runner to a four-hour marathoner. Exactly. Or if you go through the mile through the first for the first 5K of your marathon, and it's supposed to be, say, 30 minutes, but it's 29:30, people will like, oh god, now the next one's got to be 30:30, but that it, throws, exactly. but that'll throw them off for the whole race. Exactly. So a lot of times it's just learning how to deal with that, you know. Very. That's that's very interesting. I think. I think that's something that uh, I would agree. That's probably a missing component, probably in my own running too. So I don't want to keep you too too much longer, Steve, because I'm sure you got a busy day with uh, got to get to practice. So just what are uh, maybe two or three final bits of advice for those out there who are trying to achieve all manner of running goals? 
Um, sure. You know, I think the biggest thing is, is, is training is important, but you got to have fun with it. So set yourself goals, um, that are achievable, but, but also <laughs> make sure that you, you, en- you enjoy what you're doing. Um, that's the biggest thing is a lot of times I see athletes who almost go into the mindset of, uh, almost hating to race because they put so much stress on it. The other advice I give is take the Kenyan approach. You know, I've, I've, I've watched them race all the time. I've had athletes who have gone over there. And the one, one thing they say is that, you know, they're full of confidence. And even if they blow up in the race, they don't let it affect the next, next race. It's almost like we have, we have a 24-hour rule on this team where it's like no matter after the race, whether you do good or bad, celebrate, be mad for 24 hours, but then after that, forget it. Um, and I think that's an approach that sometimes us in the U.S. kind of forget as we kind of let those races that didn't go too well or those workouts that didn't go too well kind of you know, sit there and, and bother us. And I think if we could you know, psychologically get better at just kind of taking the Kenyan model and being like, oh, whatever, it happened, you know, back on the back on the train. Or if we had a breakthrough, whatever, it happened, you know, next race. That's something that I was, that in a previous interview, I was, that came up as well. Uh, it was a Kenyan marathoner who I believe, the example was he had run 212, and I believe that day he ran 250. So, ungodly slower than he had hoped to go and had wa- and had wanted to go and hours later in the airport was already talking about going under 210 in his next in his next marathon yeah which sounds and it sounds like that's something that uh that mo Farah and galen rupp tend to have and i think those of us particularly the more germanically inclined of us tend to tend to be missing and could probably stand to benefit more from definitely well, Steve, thanks very much for your time. I haven't read your book yet, but I uh, I certainly hope to. Where where could I get it if I if I were inclined to do that? Yep. So it's on Amazon.com. So uh, just search "Science of Running" or Steve Magnus on Amazon, and you can get it either Kindle or uh, paperback. Sounds that sounds really cool. I'm uh, I'm looking forward to reading it. Well, and again, thanks for your time, and uh, have a great rest of the day, and we'll, uh, we look forward to chatting with you maybe in the future with, with another book you're writing. <laughs> Definitely. Thanks a lot. This has been a Runners Connect podcast. If you have a question about what you heard or feedback you'd like to give, please don't hesitate. You can leave a written comment on the episode, either on our website or through our iTunes page, or you can leave us a voice message. The number for that is 617-356-7969. We'll answer as many of the questions as we can in one of our monthly Q&A sessions. We look forward to hearing from you, and thanks for listening.